Before beginning tonight, I want to give a word of thanks to this congregation for all of your encouragement during these few days. Uh, seems like I can see maybe why some preachers could get spoiled around here. I won't mention any names, but people are so supportive and encouraging, and you all, I should say, are very supportive and encouraging. And I already I thank you for that. You've got a lot of children here. What a blessing. If you've ever been in a congregation where there are not many kids, a little discouraging. But you have plenty of encouragement here along that line. May God bless you as you work to raise them. It's been great. I can't mention everyone by name, but the people who've had me in your homes, thank you so much. It's been good to be around Bob and Sherry. Uh, haven't, as he said, haven't been able to spend a whole lot of time through the years together, just kind of admired him from a distance, but glad to have spent some time with them. And uh, as you know, uh, I enjoyed being so much with the Martins. I just felt at home, every little little detail taken care of to make sure that I was comfortable. I've, just in a few days, I feel like I've grown close to them, and I really thank them for their hospitality and their help. May God continue to bless you all as you grow in him and work with these kids and reach out into the community. And may you be a light in this city, this large city, for the glory of God in every way. I want to start off tonight talking about what I'm going to call the reaction mode. We have a tendency to react to each other or to react to things that we see rather than Focusing on God and our response to certain situations. I'll give you some Bible examples to illustrate what I'm talking about. Think about Moses in Numbers chapter 20. Moses had every right to be angry. God had liberated Israelite, the Israelites from harsh slavery. He'd given them food. He'd taken care of them in the wilderness. And yet time and time again... They're murmuring, and they're complaining, they're not happy. Now, here in the wilderness of sin, same type of complaining, when no water is apparently there. God had taken care of them before. That fact did not seem to register with them. And here they are, complaining and murmuring. Well, in Numbers chapter 20, God told Moses to speak to the rock, to bring forth the water. And in verse 9, the people gather together, and it's not hard to imagine, they're grumbling and complaining as they did so. And you can almost sense the anger, the indignation, building up in Moses as he observes that rabble coming around with all their complaints. Thus we read in verses 10 and 11. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Here we see Sin. What was his sin? That God told him to speak to the rock and he struck it instead? That may be a part of it. But we have a divine commentary in the 106th Psalm. Uh, verses 32 and 33 says that his, his sin was that he spoke rashly with his lips. 
In his justifiable anger, he forgot about God. And it seemed to be speaking as if things depended at least in part upon him. And if you keep on reading, as a result of this sin, verse 12, Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Now, in thinking of this situation, were the children of Israel in error? Absolutely. Did that justify his rash words? In no way. They needed rebuke? Yes, but not with the arrogant attitude. Moses was in the reaction mode that we're talking about tonight. A few other quick Bible examples. Uh, there are so many interesting stories, aren't there, uh, throughout the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, we have David fleeing from Saul, and he comes with his group of men close to the uh, place where a wealthy man named Nabal lived. And to use the modern terminology to save time, Nabal disrespected David, spoke of him as if he were nothing and a nobody. You can just sense the blood rushing into David. He's going to take care of this. He's going to kill not just Nabal, but everyone in his family. He forgot about God until Abigail came on the scene, calmed him down. We men don't like to admit it, but often we need our wives, we need women to come and calm us down. I can say that since Beverly is 800 miles away right now. David was in the reaction mode. Another quick example, another curious little story. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, David is fleeing from Absalom, leaving Jerusalem at a time of one of the, I suppose, the darkest time, perhaps, in his life, except for his sin with Bathsheba. And some fellow named Shimei comes out at David, cursing him and throwing him stones. You can almost imagine him being something like Ernest T. Bass, just causing problems and aggravation. And, and David's men were not in the mood to fool with that. We'll just take care of him right now. They were going to kill him. David, no. This time it's David that calms them down. The men, David's men, were in the reaction mode and David calmed them down. And in the New Testament, it almost seems that may have been a problem when the Corinthians were, so, were, were in danger of not emphasizing mercy enough in dealing with a penitent sinner. And we see this reaction mode even today in the spiritual realm. Especially when there's controversy. We see an error. We're disgusted by it. We become fixated on it and concerned about it. And we forget to respond as Jesus would respond. Instead, we lash out, not on the basis of Christ's teaching, but on the basis of our maybe justifiable disgust. And I think I've especially seen this reaction mode in an age-old conflict between two groups of disciples. First, those who think that convictions should just have priority over mercy. Uh, they talk a lot about obedience, 
don't talk very much about grace. And then the second category would be those who emphasize mercy over convictions. They talk a lot about grace, but they don't talk very much about obedience. And this type of a conflict has evidently existed historically. We can even see it in the New Testament. In Jude verse 4, Jude talks about some who would turn the grace of God into licentiousness. In other words, they wanted grace, 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 and no breaks, uh, no convictions. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, it seems that there were some who resented Paul's talking so much about grace. And they, the idea seems to have been on their part that Paul was saying, let us continue and continue in sin that grace may abound. Perhaps we're talking about people who wanted to emphasize Jewish culture without grace. And we see it today. We see conflicts between those, especially who have been influenced more by a rational approach to the scriptures and those maybe influenced more by a postmodern approach. Getting back to some of the things we talked about Sunday morning. So I want us to talk tonight about convictions and mercy. We're going to have three main points. First, we're going to talk about the danger of emphasizing conviction without mercy. Then we're going to talk about the danger of emphasizing mercy without conviction. And then last of all, we're going to talk about the right approach, imitating Jesus, learning that perfect blend of conviction and mercy. Well, first of all, let's talk about problems that we often see with those who want to emphasize convictions and almost don't take mercy into consideration. When I was a young preacher, not that long ago, really, but I went to debate in eastern Kentucky. And uh, I remember the little little building where they had it, you know, you rattly air conditioning, and we needed it on that hot night. It was going to be hot inside just as it was outside. One of the brethren who was starting the debate, it was over an issue that, well, if I remember correctly, it was over an issue of whether a woman could teach a Bible class or not, which is a big issue in eastern Kentucky. Uh, one preacher stood up, the first one, and his first words were, one of us, either the brother I'm debating or me, one of us is going to hell. Either he's going to hell or I'm going to hell. Then after he talked about 30 minutes, it was uh, 30 seconds, I should say. After about 30 seconds, it was obvious that he did not think he was the one that was going no concept of mercy. The idea that if you disagree with me, there's no hope. Uh, there's a um, writer named Richard Hughes who illustrated uh, this point in describing a preacher who went to Cincinnati in the 1930s. And the preacher preached a series of sermons that were described as pugnacious. Have you ever heard any pugnacious sermons? But the preacher at the local congregation, his name was given, F.L. Rowe, I thought that maybe there needed to be some balance. So he went to this preacher who was giving the pugnacious sermons and asked him, could you just do a sermon on the prodigal son tonight? And according to Brother Hughes, the preacher said, the prodigal son? 
Well, I've never studied that topic before. Never studied the prodigal son? Couldn't preach on the prodigal son? Can you imagine a preacher's never preached on the prodigal son? I think it might be tough for a few because the concept of mercy and grace is so far away from them. There are all kinds of problems with that approach. What are some basic problems? I don't like to use the word basic, I just did. But what are some fundamental problems when you emphasize convictions without mercy? You just don't take into consideration an essential aspect of God's character, and that is mercy. Don't ever let anybody tell you there's no grace in the Old Testament. They do just say, just go look at Psalm 103. All through, we see expressions of God's grace and mercy. Quickly, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Aren't we thankful we don't get what we deserve? Verse 14. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He knows what we are. There's an interesting story in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. And I remember this hitting me for the first time. I can't remember how many years ago and thinking, what is going on here? I'm not going to go into it deeply, but I'm going to give you a brief summary. Hezekiah is working to restore the, the practice of the Passover, which had been forgotten for a number of years by the Jewish people. And he wanted to do it right. He wanted not just to invite people from the Jew, the, the territory of Judah, but he thought of the scattered remnants of those ten tribes that had been that were left in the north. And he invited them to, to come and partake of the Passover. And though many made fun of the messengers that Hezekiah sent out, a few came. In verse 18, the first part of verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 13, we read about some problems. Regarding the Passover, a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. These people hadn't obeyed God. They had been presumptuous. The scriptures should have, they should have learned from the scriptures the cleansing requirements before partaking of the Passover. They just weren't paying attention. And when you think of this, you, as you're reading it, is something bad going to happen? Nadab and Abihu? But look at verse 18, the last part, and then through 20. Uh, we see mercy because Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. Now, verse 20. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. So we have some people who messed up who did what was wrong. They were seeking God, and perhaps that's the reason he extended his mercy to them. Till they could learn better, you might say. 
So if we talk, if we all talk only convictions and don't emphasize at the same time mercy, we're missing the very essence of God. Another problem. If we emphasize convictions without mercy, we're not imitating Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to, that's my last point, so I'm not going to get into it deeply. Jesus was a combination of, the, of both. If we're going to emphasize convictions without mercy, we're going to make issue-oriented congregations instead of Christ-oriented congregations. I'll explain to you what I'm talking about. A uh, number of years ago, I was talking with a young man about a congregation in the city where he was. He was at another. And I said, well, how are the brethren doing at such and such a congregation? And he said, well, not great. He said, you know, that's an issue-oriented congregation. That was a good description. They were just always going at, after each other on different Issues, But as I thought about that description, issue-oriented congregation, I thought, is that what we should be? Should we be issue-oriented or Christ-oriented? Now, don't get me wrong. If our primary focus is on Jesus Christ, we're going to be concerned about issues that threaten God's people. Uh, the church at Pergamos should have been a little more concerned about, I should say a lot more concerned, about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans among them. And if we love Christ more than anything else, we're going to educate ourselves about issues that may threaten. But a focus primarily on issues with a secondary focus perhaps on Jesus Christ is just the wrong way to go. It should be the other way around. A primary focus on Jesus Christ, his death, his mercy, imitation of him, and as a result of that, concern about issues that might affect the people of God. Issue-oriented congregations instead of Christ-oriented congregations. There's something else. When we have a sole emphasis on convictions... And no mercy. Brethren, and especially the young, lose heart. I'm going to take a scripture that has a specific application and apply it a little differently from its original intention. But in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul said, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. I'm going to make that a little broader in this application here. But when a congregation emphasizes convictions and no mercy, the younger people, and others as well, lose heart. We've seen congregations where there's squabbling, fussing, fighting, divisions, splits. Then you split the splits. Where's the mercy? Lots of convictions... A lot of times they're misdirected. But where's the mercy? Now, sometimes I realize division is necessary. When others insist that all do things that may violate their conscience, you can't stay where you're going to be forced to violate your conscience. I understand that. But often the problem is simply a matter of the fact that there's just no emphasis on mercy. 
No emphasis on grace. And young people see that. And they're tempted then to wander off into that convictionless modernism or subjective emotionalism or whatever. They don't see the importance of staying where there's emphasis on on convictions and no mercy. The results are disastrous. That is not the way of Christ. Well, let's go to the second point. What about mercy, emphasizing mercy, emphasizing grace without convictions? This is often the way of thinking. When people react, get in the reaction mode about those who emphasize convictions without mercy. They've seen the battles over the picky little issues. They've seen proud and arrogant people sometimes who use sarcasm to attack those who disagree with them. And they give little time to serve others in their community, and they rebel against that. And here's some statements that I've heard a lot lately. Um, Church organization wasn't the primary focus of Christ. Love was. Well, you really can't argue with that. But the implication is that church organization just doesn't matter. And that's going to lead you to some difficult areas. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Christ did not die on the cross for a cappella music. Somebody threw that one out at me one time. Well, I don't know if you can say that Christ died on the cross with any one specific action in mind. I don't think you can say Christ died on the cross for the Lord's Supper. But the things that he commanded do have something to do with his death on the cross. But this is, this is the type of thing that we hear. There is no pattern for congregational worship and organization. Love is the pattern. It sounds nice, but if you say there's just no pattern, you're going to get into some trouble. We'll talk about that in a minute. And of course, the old, we need a new hermeneutic or, or method of studying the Bible. What's the problem with all of this? It's showing that we're in the reaction mode instead of imitating Christ. Those statements do not come from Scripture. Also, it rejects a common sense interpretation of the Bible. It is so important. We talked about this a bit on Sunday morning. I'm not going to it deeply now. But we complain about, or we or they complain about command, example, and necessary inference. And when we say that, we're just talking about a method of communication. It's another way of saying, where's the command? Where's the example? Where's the necessary inference? That's just simply a way of saying, where's there some type of communication from God that indicates that he wants something or not? But when you say that you cannot understand the Bible by either God showing us, God telling us, or by giving us implications... The big question, here's the big question. How then do you determine how to proceed? And here's the answer. Feelings. That's all you're left with. If you say you can't understand any kind of pattern in the Bible. And yet many who have been raised with the concept that there's a right and wrong They don't understand the consequences of leaving that standard. And often, it starts off small. I think 150 years ago, the idea is just just a little organ. And of course, we saw what came. 
And today, just a little guitar, not going to hurt anybody. But what we're going to get is a full-fledged rock band with laser shows and smoke and all of that stuff. We, when our standards become our feelings, watch out. In two or three generations, what's left is going to bear little resemblance to what is, comes from the very beginning. And that's, that's sad. What we get then is full-blown apostasy. One brother, and I've friends with a lot of these guys on Facebook. They, they help me get up sermon material, and, they, uh, and I hope we help each other a little bit, even though we disagree. He said, nothing about church organization or worship really affects our salvation. Nothing about church organization or worship really affects our salvation. I think what I've done with my friends who speak that way, that gives them a little bit of pause, not a lot, but a little bit, is just say, accept the logical consequences of what you're saying. Think about where that's going to take you. If church organization and worship has really little to do with our salvation, what is wrong with holy water? What is wrong with rosaries? What is wrong with images? A universal bishop to control the churches? What is wrong with it? And of course, if you press them, they'll eventually say something like this. That's not what I would prefer, but I'm not going to say that, that that's really wrong. And at least when they reach that point, they're being consistent. But what they don't get is it's leading us far away from Christ and his simplicity. Uh, this line of reasoning uh, of those who underplay the importance of conviction uh, gives way to often the statement, I prefer. I prefer. Uh, a brother was challenging me. He said, and a friend of mine, there's no real exclusive pattern on how churches can raise money. And he suggested to me, car washes. Who could say to be wrong just to have a car wash here and have the kids wash cars and raise money for the church? And here's the way to answer. Take that to its logical conclusion. And I asked him, what then about churches involving themselves in banking, in real estate, in the stock market, a little while later his answer came back. Well, I prefer that churches raise money through voluntary offerings of the members. But I wouldn't say that the other is necessarily wrong. Another brother said, there's really no exclusive pattern for worship. And somebody asked him, well, what about having watermelon in the Lord's Supper? Can you imagine? I guess when's watermelon time, June or July? We just have some bread and just, just bring out three or four big ones and start slicing and hand them out. That's the Lord's Supper. Well, he was pressed. He kind of tried to evade it a little bit. Finally, he said, I would prefer not to have watermelon for the Lord's Supper. I'm just not going to say it's wrong. And really, if you're going to be consistent, you can't say it's wrong. Uh, those words, I prefer are just not sufficient to stop man's tendency to apostatize and get away from God. Can you imagine if this had happened? Of course, this did not happen. 
but in the second and the third centuries after Christ. Here's a man, we're going to say that he is the regional bishop in control of this diocese. Maybe there was somebody that said, we don't have any historical record of it. I prefer that they don't do that. How effective would that have been in stopping that type of a development? Or let's baptize these babies. Let's just sprinkle these babies. I would prefer that you not do that. It just doesn't work, does it? The only way to stop man's tendency to gradually leave God is to use the same types of words that Jesus used in reference to the baptism of John. Is it from heaven or is it from men? If we continually ask that question instead of saying, I prefer this, I prefer that, that's going to keep us in the way of Jesus Christ. Where is there any indication that God really wants us to do this? Now, this type of language, especially saying, where's the book, chapter, and verse? That really raises some hackles. But that type of language brings on scoffing from uh, those who uh, are wanting to emphasize mercy without convictions. But then what are they left with? All they're left with is, I prefer... And that just doesn't get it. It's following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bottom line is it leads to a distancing of ourselves from Christ. Christ way. Christ patterns. That's another bad word for those that like all mercy and no convictions. But it's, it's a correct representation of what we have in the scriptures. Christ pattern produces humble people. It gives glory to God. It does not elevate man. But if you say, it doesn't really matter that we imitate early Christians who were taught by the apostles, then you're opening the way for human pride to invent human organizations, to invent human ways of worship that will bring glory to men, elevate men, and gradually God is left out of the picture more and more through the teaching of his word. Well, if... All convictions and no mercy brings disaster. And if all mercy and no convictions brings disaster, what are we left with? And of course you know the answer. Imitating Jesus. Jesus was the perfect blend of the two. And that's what we've got to dedicate ourselves to doing. Analyzing his reaction, his response, his words. Jesus had convictions. There's several things that illustrate it directly, the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. Have you ever thought, what would it have been like to have been present there in in the temple? You may have been in a chair just watching the activities. To have watched, what would have been the sounds that you would have heard as this happened? Here comes some imposing figure and maybe some country guard from Galilee, whirling his way around where the animals are sold. And money changed, and there goes a table of flying, and there goes coins all over the floor. And we're talking coins with them. We're not talking pennies and nickels and dimes. We're talking about stuff that was of value. And the, so the coins are running around. Maybe somebody's trying to scramble after a few. And the animals bleeding and lowing and fluttering doves and pure pandemonium. Can you imagine if something like that happened today? Can you imagine the headlines? 
preacher out of control at local bingo or something, whatever like that. And if somebody had had a, 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 a camera phone or a video, they're taking videos, they're going to put it on YouTube. That one's going viral. Preacher out of control. Can you imagine all the negative comments? Why? Jesus was a man of conviction. He hated to see his father's house profane. It should have been a place of prayer and it had been turned into a den of thieves. So we see his righteous indignation coming from a man of conviction. And there are other examples. He taught with authority, not as a scribes. He, he was a man of convictions. He condemned the Sadducees when they tried to come up with their mousy little argument about the, the uh, poor woman who had seven husbands. Which one's going to be her husband in the resurrection? Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Matthew 22, 29 and 30. And that strong condemnation of the Pharisees in 23. You read Matthew 23, and as an old preacher said, it's almost like there's smoke coming out of that chapter. Such strong language. Why? Jesus was a man of conviction. He hated to see, especially those who are claiming to represent his father, be such hypocrites. Jesus loved the truth. He hated the systems of men that promoted pride. And drew people away from God. But Jesus also had mercy. I am gentle and humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. There are several ways we can see this. You notice it in his attitude toward the Samaritans. Have you ever noticed that as you've read the life of Jesus? Who are the Samaritans? We're probably talking about a mixed race of people. Maybe the descendants of the old kingdom of Israel and, the, and, and, uh, and those who had been displaced who were, came in there. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And it's amazing to read in history some of the bad things that they did to the Jews and some of the bad things the Jews did to them. Doctrinally, the Samaritans were a mess. They did not believe in the resurrection. They insisted on worshiping God in Mount Gerizim. And yet... Almost 100% of what Jesus says about the Samaritans is positive. You can fill in the blank. The parable of the good Samaritan. Only one of the ten lepers was healed, had enough thankfulness to go back to Jesus. He was a Samaritan. John chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh... The, the, um, well, there's other examples coming to my mind, but I'm not going to try to get them. I'll get confused if I do. But you know them. You know how the Samaritans are presented in a positive light, in spite of all of their errors. Doctrinally, the Pharisees were much better off than the Samaritans. But who received the scathing denunciations? The Pharisees. We can see the mercy of Jesus and the fact that he was a companion of the tax collectors and sinners. This earned him the scathing denunciation of the Pharisees as well. We see it in his patience with disciples, the apostles in particular. These were humble men. 
with a lot of weaknesses. Have you ever sat down to try to write out a list of all the weaknesses of the apostles? I've got some lists here. I would not dare go through them all. I'm going to throw them up on the board. I always appreciate so much the young people who try to take all the notes that I put on the screen. Sometimes I go too fast, and I'm sorry. But you're not going to ever get these down. I'm going to go through so fast. But just think of some of the weaknesses of the disciples. I'm going to mention the top one, but you can just kind of glance and see some of the others. They're arguing over who is the greatest. And you can see the rest. They were chasing away the little children that wanted to come to Jesus. And you think of Peter's rebuke of Jesus, which we mentioned earlier this week, for saying that he would suffer and die in Jerusalem. Good Bible class project. Write down all the weaknesses of the disciples. And yet... Here's an amazing verse. And I remember this struck me pretty when I was a pretty young man. Jesus is praying for his disciples. And what does he say about them? Can you read it? And they have kept your word. We might feel like saying, what? Those fellows have kept your word? How can you say that, Jesus? There's only one answer. Mercy. Mercy, that's the only answer you can give. Well, when thinking of this, we say, Jesus so patient with the Samaritans, so indignant at the Pharisees. Was he contradictory? No, Jesus was not contradictory. He was that perfect blend of convictions and mercy. And if we're going to imitate Jesus, that's got to be a goal of ours. To learn, to blend just as Jesus did, mercy and convictions. And that's not easy. Sometimes somebody says that raising kids is not easy. When to be hard, when to punish them, when to praise them, when to... It's hard. And treating others just as Jesus treated them is hard. But the more we study Jesus and the more experience we have, the more we can do it. It's not a matter of turning one on, convictions perhaps, and the other off, no mercy now, and then turn mercy on and turn convictions off. No, these are things we have simultaneously, just as Jesus had them, just as our Heavenly Father had them. I think when you look at Jesus, you can say that generally we see His mercy more when He's dealing with those who are down and out and those who are at least striving to do better. And I think we see a strong convictions more evident when He's dealing with those who are proud with those who should have known better. And that's generally the way it's going to be with us. But to apply this precisely requires study, prayer, and experience. You know, that's a solution to all of our spiritual challenges. Imitate Jesus. Follow Him. Refuse to get into the Moses reaction mode. And sometimes we need to help each other. You may be getting into the reaction mode. Be strong in convictions. The lack of trust in God's authority leads us into all kinds of problems. But also merciful and loving as Jesus was. Don't you ever think that convictions and mercy are incompatible. 
Biblically, they are inseparable companions. Well, if you're not a disciple of the Lord, I want you to think of the mercy of Christ. And if you want to think of the mercy of Christ, you need to also think of his concern that you do what's right, and that you be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. One way you can see Jesus' mercy towards you, if you're not a Christian, is that he is giving you time to repent and obey the gospel. Don't look at that patience of Jesus with disdain. Don't try to take advantage of his patience and his mercy with you. You need him now. You need to respond to him. You need to do what Ananias told Saul of Tarsus. You need to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. If we can help you in doing that tonight, we stand ready to help you. Thanks for your good attention, and let's stand now and sing the invitation song.